When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. This is a special bonus episode of So Very Wrong About Games, partially to compensate you for the fact that we did not release an episode last week due to emergency kitten-related medical travel, and also because a listener suggested that we ought to show people what some of our patron-exclusive content looks like. Now, the initial impulse, of course, is just to be lazy and dig up the vaults of some of the hundreds and hundreds of Patreon-exclusive episodes and just release it in its entirety. But then, of course, we would be lying because then it's not Patreon-exclusive anymore. So we've decided to split the difference and give you sort of a sampler platter of some of the shows that we release somewhat regularly under the banner of Patreon content here at So Very Wrong About Games. So... This is not going to take the form of a normal episode. We're just going to give you bits of somewhat recent bonus episodes that we've published through Patreon. First, we're going to show you a bit from Pledge of Indifference. Pledge of Indifference is the bi-weekly show where Walker and I look through campaigns on crowdfunding. That is to say, almost exclusively Kickstarter, GameFound, and BackerKit. But on occasion, we find other things as well. And we comment on those ongoing pledges. We talk about what we're pledging for, what we're not pledging for. The latter is a much, much larger category. In part, hence the term Pledge of Indifference. And we talk about recent acquisitions and recent pledges that have come in. After that, I'm going to show you a bit of an episode of BLOAT. BLOAT is an acronym for Mark Blathers On About Things. And that is the venue for me to share whatever is passing through my addled mind at a given moment, independent of the main show. This is always at least tangentially related to board games and board game media, although sometimes, as you will hear in this particular case, I draw on other things in the clip you're going to hear. I'm going to talk about a lot about video games in the American Supreme Court. But anyway, trust me, there's a jurisdictional hook back to board games in case you are curious. Finally, there's the newest... Patreon-exclusive show here at So Very Wrong About Games, Sizzler, which is Spirit Island zealously zapping legions of European rapscallions, and that is where we talk about Spirit Island. Walker, for perhaps obvious reasons, is not involved. Instead, I talk with my friends Jimbo and Megan about our somewhat regular games of Spirit Island. And we talk about what spirits we played, our experiences with them, the adversary we played against, uh, general thoughts on the game. And this, too, is a roughly bi-weekly show. So Pledge of Indifference is every other week like Clockwork, Sizzler is roughly every other week, and Bloat is intermittent. Sometimes I've done two bloats in a week, sometimes I've only done one bloat in a month. Long story short, through the various offerings we have at So Very Wrong About Games and some other shows as well, such as So Very Wrong About All the Games You Like Are Bad, you're gonna hear about one-ish bonus episodes a week, sometimes more, sometimes less, through the Patreon feed. And as I say, this is just a sampling of what we do on that channel. 
So if you're at all interested in supporting us, of course, please do check out patreon.com slash swag, and we would be more than happy to have your support. If not, that's fine too. Enjoy this episode, and we apologize for having missed last week, and that's fine. We can go forth and sin no more. So first up, here is Pledge of Indifference. We We pledge pledge indifference to the the campaign campaign for the the latest latest stuff on Kickstarter and to the FOMO for which it stands. Next up, Shipwrights of the North Sea Redo. Yes. You say Redo? Redux. Oh, no, it's a legitimate interpretation. Sorry, I was just asking. No, it is Redux. It's what happens when you... No, Redo is a legit... It has been sufficiently... It's kind of like verse for versus. At a certain point, it becomes an acceptable pronunciation. I mean, acceptable. It's always pr- acceptable pronunciation, but whatever. I, I spend too much time on the wrong linguists. Moving on. So this is Shem Phillips in the X profession of the Y Place Nine series. Apparently, this is the game that started it all, and they're redoing it. So, Mark. Yes? I'm not saying that this is the way they're doing it. Okay. Or not the way that other people might interpret it. But as but a possibility. There's a possibility it might be... Here is a very popular game. Let's tweak it a bit and make them pay for it again, <laughs> and then at the same time make all of our other available game, other all of our other games available on the Not Store Kickstarter page store. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know enough about the original game to comment. I just say that when I see Garpill Games and I see Shem Phillips, I just move on. They're all perfectly serviceable. Yeah, but a lot of people like them. I'm not a lot say of people it. like them. To me, they're just perfectly serviceable, incredibly bland Euros. Nothing particularly of note. Uh, I, it's an impressive brand that they built, quite yeah. frankly. They've done a very, very good job of building up a brand. To be frank, I'm surprised that with six days to go, it has only raised this much money. Given the number of people that do appreciate it, it's raised less than 300000 Canadian dollars so far. Interesting. Yeah. I'm surprised, especially given, as you say, that it's basically a store. Oh, maybe it's all these people that are that are pledging $1 and are going to get everything in the store later. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I've yet to play. People keep saying, try X of the Y. Try Z of the W. Try A of the, of the, of the, of the G. Like, they all just feel so generic and recycled Euro stuff. I just, none of them have ever really captured my attention. Yeah, I'm not sure if, if, if this has helped them or hurt them. In the long run, oh, you mean redoing? Not not this particular no, not this particular project. Just the the fact that they're all so similar sounding and looking, right? Oh, so okay. Do people just dismiss the whole line, or you know, if they had made I don't it, know. if they made a com- like a completely different cut oh, to something point. totally different, that's a good point. would it get more eyes on? Because it, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, my natural assumption is to say that they've built themselves a successful brand, and that's got to be good for return customers. But you may be right. There may be far too many people who, I mean, hell, there might be some people like, don't I already have that one? Or because <laughs> they can't tell them apart. With sleeves or without sleeves? Box sleeves. you got to get yes. the special box sleeves. Man. Well, because the difference would be that your Raiders game wouldn't yeah. look the same as the rest. You see, because for some reason, the side of, no, some of them are same. No, explorers are the same. Shipwrights are, are the same. The other ones, the sleeve brings it down. Oh, you're right. Oh, this is weird. I don't get it. No. Well, clearly they're interested in building a brand because they like showing all their boxes of the same size lined up against each other. Yeah. <laughs> I've got them all. Got to catch them all, Walker. Let's move on. That is Shipwrights Ship- of the North Sea Redux. Next up, we found it, Mark. Yep. Yeah, you want... I've been looking, I've been looking for this game all my life. Yep, you want the campaign system... 
that is, you know, all the ones that are on our shelf that yeah. are gathering dust yeah, that, yeah. that we should play, but yeah. no. No, just throw it's those be, in the garbage. It's going to be Tanaris Adventures Ultimate Edition all the time. Yes, all the way down. Vera Pinlo, I get strong very uh, Vera Pinlo vibes from this one. So this is a reprint of a game that they've already put out once. Yes, there's going to be it's the sta- it's the standard expansion plus reprint. But campaign. I, I wanted this because it has all of these words. Look, revolutionary. <gasps> Dynamic, revolutionary, and dynamic, rewarding, strategic. Oh. All, all of these streamlined. Man, so wow, many, dramatic. So many buzzwords. Is it innovative uh, it, too? Yeah, I assume if it's revolutionary, it's also innovative. Uh, probably somewhere we'll find it. So the essential gameplay pet pledge is one hundred and eighty nine American dollars. But no, that's that's the that is the you don't believe in the system pledge. You need to go. <laughs> You need to go all you know, the, all the way down. Yeah, yeah, all the way down. Oh well, no, the super box is only four hundred eighty nine. The all in. Is, wait, so there's a super and all in. The all in is six forty nine American, and then there's cosmetic, including the penumbral terrace. Exactly for well, eight hundred thirty nine. Exactly a mere eleven hundred sixteen Canadian dollars. Holy crap! Yeah, exactly right. Because if if you have faith in yeah. the system, Mark. Yeah, if you're really if you're a believer, yeah, exactly. Then how can you not spend a thousand dollars? Do you know what a sucker would do in the face of Tenaris Adventures? In the face of Tenaris Adventures, it would be the act of a great fool, a tremendous sucker, to buy Gloomhaven for one hundred thirty. Exactly. Only a moron. What kind of moron would do that? I mean, hell, once you get all the miniatures for Gloomhaven, it's all the way up to $260. Why would you want a fully miniatured out Gloomhaven when you could pay $1,000 for this? I... <laughs> I am this is even far, far more than Oathsworn, like the ridiculous Oathsworn that's four huge boxes. Look at these boxes. Mo- boxes for days, man. <laughs> Yo, dog, I heard you like boxes. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, to be fair, to be entirely fair, uh, here's the thing that always gives me pause. Every time there's an exp- there's, a, there's a campaign like this, and we say the same things we always say. This is Bear Pinlow, this is another, another thing, whatever. There's always that one in a trillion chance that it's the next Gloomhaven. There's even just a one in a million chance that it's the next Oathsworn. Because Oathsworn is amazing. But it looked exact, more or less like this. It did in its crowdfunding campaign, and then and it will go up on the shelf and gather dust like all the other. I systems. swear we're gonna get back to Oathsworn. I want to find out what happens next. I want to find out. I agree, and it's good, and it is worth getting back to. And we need to play. So it, look, Frosthaven and Oathsworn. Those are the two. Those are the two that we need to get back to at some point. Even just a couple of games. I, I don't even necessarily mean we need we need to do a death march to the end. I just wanna yeah. But the thing is, I will say, though, that when Oathsworn came out, a whole bunch of people that I trust said, this has no right to be this good, right? Yeah. I have heard nothing from the people I trust about Tanaris Adventures. I've heard nothing about it at all. Yeah, see, there you go. Until this side, I said, oh, that miniature looks kind of cool. Oh, yeah, the dragon next to the pagoda looks neat, no doubt. So that's what drew me into looking at it, and I was just like, (laughs) Yeah, see, that's the thing. That's That's one of the reasons why... So having said that, there's always the one in a million chance, the one in a trillion chance. That is why it is important to have people with a good critical eye that you trust, right? 6,487 backers. Yes. For one million. One and a half million bucks Canadian, yeah. Yeah. People must like it. Yeah. People keep buying them. I mean, that's why they keep on it. Look, the market's going to do what the market's going to do. Yeah. And you got to figure, a whole bunch of these people have the base game and they haven't played it, right? 
Yeah. How, how many of how many of those backers? What proportion of that backer value backer amount is people who have the base game and who haven't played it and are still buying the expansion? I don't know, but it's an interesting question. I think. Agreed. And that is Tanaris Adventures Ultimate Edition. They say ultimate, but I bet you there's going to be more. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Next up, Cyoclades. I don't know. I, I wanted to play the video to show you how the how how they pronounced it in the video. So but... I've heard Cyclades and Cyclades. Cyclades. Those are the two pronunciations I've heard. But again, you know, pronunciations are what pronunciations are going to be. So this is the semi-classic, I guess, game from Asmodee originally by Ludovic Moblin and Bruno Catara. And it's a game I've always wanted to like more than I do. Well, this has one good thing going for it. What's that? Madagot's not putting it out. <sighs> yeah, no kidding. Talk about taking a top-tier company yes. and then plummeting it into the ground. <laughs> Welcome to Yucatan. <laughs> Solid pronunciation there, Walker, on the topic of pronunciation here. Yep. Let, me, let me fist up. Thank you, thank yeah. you. All right. <laughs> so I like I want to be excited for this. I had the yep. original in my thing. I, I yep. enjoyed playing it, but I cannot get excited for this. I, I don't know why. Cyclades is one of those things, or Cyclades. I don't know which which is the quote unquote standard Canadian pronunciation. I don't really care. I it was one of those games very much like a lot of Martin Wallace games that I should have liked more. It's like ooh, bidding plus troops on a map, all over that, right? And with a mythological theme, but. I think it was the the nature of the economy. It always struck me as too tight. Like, in order to bid successfully for something, you then never had enough money to do anything fun. So I didn't think that it cohered well in terms of my own experience. True, but I think you're just supposed to take the hit and then go to a place where, you know... I know, I know. I'm not saying I played it well. I'm just saying, personally, I never really felt like it it was really shining for me. As opposed to a game like Antica... Which similarly has like an, a, a Euro action selection mechanism and a troops on a map thing. I'm going to have to read the rules because I want to see if they change anything about the end game. And then I might... Yeah, because you, you object... I don't object to the end game, but you do. Yeah. The just sort of... Did you find it anticlimactic or too sudden? Both. Okay, fair enough. And I do appreciate this again. This There's this market thing that keeps happening. People want the basic edition, right? Without minis. They want, they want to have the option of doing it. So they have a Meeple Pledge, which is 85 Canadian dollars, and 346 people have backed for it, all right? And then there's the Miniatures Pledge, which is 145 Canadian dollars, and 313 have backed for this. This is the first time I have ever seen the Basic Pledge outstrip the Miniatures Pledge. Now, that having been said, then there's the... Oh, sorry. I would like to retract everything I said. Because the ultimate pledge, which is 175 Canadian dollars, which includes the miniatures edition, is 3,274 backers. I'm yes. sorry, I was uh, I was I it's, was speaking nonsense out yeah, of my. Uh, out see, of my that's cable. the problem I have is too. Is that the miniatures are so nice, are and they? When, and when you see the tables and then you compare the monster pogs to the actual, I gotta, uh, I've yeah. gotta, I've gotta follow my own path though. If I do <laughs> get it, it has to be the meat. But when I can't preach getting less plastic and then get the plastic right yeah especially if there were if there were an add-on pledge for just the monster minis that might make sense right yeah but as it is you have to get all of the 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 minis the only things that are that you can get separately are the buildings with the metropolis metropoli really no it's not real but yeah it sounds better than metropolises yeah yeah sure fine 
And then, of course, you get the the metal uh, the metal coins. Of course, for thirty. I know, I know. Bucks, but it's a lot. I yeah. Think. No, if I were to back for this, and I'm not going to, because I wanted to like Cyclades so much. On paper, it should be the game one of the, you know one of my favorites, but it just never really worked for a variety of reasons. Always solid. Like I was never like, ugh, this is bad. Yeah. It just it just exactly. didn't quite hit. Yeah, uh, but I think, I think I'm gonna have to. It's just sat on the shelf. Yeah. So, if, like, why it, give it another try? Yeah, it, but if I were to pledge for this, I think the value proposition is obvious, and I would go for the Meeple Edition. Because the difference in price from 85 to $145, that's $60 for the miniatures, that's a fair amount. You know what else? It's, it is a six-player game, though. Yeah. It's hard to find six players. That is true. I mean... Uh, not, it's not hard to find six players. It's hard to find quality six-player games. That move. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and Cyclades always did move. Eh, yeah. Eh. yeah, look at the rules. They have changed the end game at least in terms yeah, of I've the, heard there's something the number on. of metropolises you need. I don't yeah. know if they've changed anything past that. And the way the map's built now, the Honestly, it, that I, I could care less about. Well, it's it's the fact of getting it to the table, right? The the figuring out, you know, how many players and how to set up this. Oh sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. looks though like that all has been streamlined, so well, I don't know. Like variable maps, I used to think that variable maps were a great thing, but now I'm less sure. Because Cyclades was just a, a weird assortment of islands anyway. I don't really see what the virtue of making those tiles are. It's kind of like Small World, right? It's like, ooh, there's a variable map now for Small World. Eh, I don't really care. The only exception would be uh, for things like Scythe. I still want to try the variable map for Scythe because it really was so correlated with the factions. Like, okay, you faction, you start with these two resources. And mixing that up, I think, would change things considerably. It's not because we, ha- we, we have it. We haven't played Scythe in a dog's age. I know. I was actually going to consider suggesting it today, but... Uh... True, but here we are. What are those? I don't? I can't remember if Doctor Stallone likes Scythe. I gotta look at the. I can't figure out those tokens. But anyway, I'll look at myself. We can play Scythe with six. There you go. We That's could. the six player game. Of course, uh, Dewey doesn't like Scythe. So, no. so there's that. I don't. Yeah, it's just it's just right on the cusp for me. Honestly, oh, I'm I'm not gonna back this. But well, those are the bidding markers, right? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. Oh no, the bidding marker is the tower. Those are the those might be control markers or something. So this is yeah. So this doesn't have like monument. It has heroes, which were. Not heroes were introduced game. in some of the expansion stuff. Yeah, the Titan stuff's not there. No, no Titan the, stuff. The weird Titan mode is gone. There was also other remember little sort of statues you'd put in the different places, the white statues that were that did things as well. Honestly, by the end, there was so much optional yeah. and add-on stuff for Cyclades, and I tried all of them, and none of them quite worked for me. I just like I said, always on the cusp. All right, let's move on. That is Cyclades. More on to follow, I'm sure. Yeah. That's it. Next up, we have Well, stuff. no, we were going to talk again about Gloomhaven oh, yes, Grand the wrong, Festival. I have in the wrong order here. You yes. are correct. So uh, what's what's new in Gloomhaven Grand Festival is Buttons and Bugs, which is not to be confused with the dinosaur song Buttons and Bows, but I'm sure it's very similar. So uh, a lot of people rolled their eyes at this. Because, you know, it's another pro- product on the already somewhat product-packed Gloomhaven Festival. Masai-Masai-Mamakusa. But this is Gloomholden. This is, the, this is the published version of Gloomholden. And I, for one, am always thrilled whenever a popular print-and-play game uh, makes good and becomes successful. Like, Underfalling Skies was great. You know, a publisher just goes to the, the developers of Underfalling Skies and says, we want, we want to publish this and make it better. Great. This is an instance of Cephalofair Games and uh, Nikki Valens, one of the most interesting designers currently working today, working on Gloomholden. I think it's great. 
Yeah, you want less table space? Well, this will do it for you. Yeah, less table space, less setup. Uh, Boom Holden was supposed to be held in your hand. I think this is a little more elaborate than that. But yeah, but still, still very stripped yeah. down in comparison. Honestly, I'm gonna get this retail. No joke. I'm 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 not interested in uh, backing the Gloomhaven Grand Festival. Are you, you not know, getting anything there? No, I can just tack it on then. Oh, okay. Oh, I forgot you were backing this. Yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to upgrade my unused box of. <laughs> oh, I remember. Yes, yes, yes. I forgot you were getting the upgrade pack. Yeah. Uh, yeah, tack on the buttons and bugs for me. Look, Will do. I love Nikki Valens. I love successful, I love print and play uh, projects to make good. This is this is one. It warms the cockles of my heart, Walker. Very nice. I, I, I think this is a family show. Settle down. That's not that you don't. No, that's not how. You've ruined that word for me now, Walker. It's, it's, it's just <laughs> it's, gone. It's, it's just, gone. It's gone. Are we backing anything right now? Well, we just talked about on Backer Lit. Uh, I am... Now you're just doing it on purpose. Blacker Packer Kit. I am uh, backing Gloomhaven, the upgrade part anyway. And now Buttons and... Buttons and Bugs. Buttons and Bugs. On a bunch of stuff finished, which unfortunately I've... Oh, no, here we are. Uh, yeah, Biohack just Biohack, finished. Stroganoff expansion. The Turtokan, yeah. Rising Robots was a while ago. But nothing showed up recently, at least for me. I am currently backing, as I said, the Supermoon expansion, and I am very close to backing Project Reese, just because, as I say, it's it's sufficiently charming, and we like we like co-op murderathons. It's true. We never get tired of them. No. Even though we've got a lot of really good ones, we're always willing to try one more, and uh, you know, local project, whatever. And uh, Walker is going to take a good long look. At Cyclades. at Cyclades, but obviously we're pretty torn. <laughs> yeah, it's not looking good. That was Pledge of Indifference, our bi-weekly show about crowdfunding projects that happen to be available at the given moment. Now on to Bloat, Mark blathers on about things, a show where I basically get to ramble on about whatever. No matter what else happens, no matter what else I do in my life, and no matter what anyone says about me, whether it's Walker, all those mean people on the internet... Other content creators that seem to just want to reach out and be cruel to me. I beat Returnal. I think you're yeah, so in no small part, thanks to a listener who gifted me a leftover graphics card, which was vastly superior than I've been running in my rig previously. Rig is what the cool people refer to their computers as. Now, granted, I have not paid for any of the components of my rig other than an, an SSD. This is what people know used to refer to a uh, solid-state drive. It's a drive that's, like, solid, you know, and it's 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 a state that's solid. Actually, I do know the difference between an SSD and a normal hard drive, but whatever. That's the only money I was able to put into my, my computer. The tower itself comes from Louis and all the components therein and I bought a hard drive and then a listener gave me better video card so that that's that's where my computer comes from now granted I've got a tablet that I do all the recording on I'm recording on it right now uh, but the as as I explained in the newsletter where I was going through my office setup my computer itself my the one I do most of my work on now is mostly from handing downs but anyway returnal I done beat it and I have actually some reflections on Returnal as a game, and I think it has some illuminating or at least uh, revealing aspects for, for board game design. So going into the end of Returnal, and I enjoyed it a great deal, by the way. I highly recommend it if any of those elements, you know, I've talked about it before, roguelike, bullet hell, third-person shooter-ish. 
It was very compelling, very challenging. There were some parts where it really kicked me upside the head, and then there were some parts that I found surprisingly easy. I had very good luck with the bosses. I don't know if anyone else has had this, this experience playing Returnal. Uh, but there were a couple bosses where I just, you know, banged my head against a brick wall two or three times, and then all the other bosses, I killed them on the first try. Just breezed past them. I think part of it is because of my experience with Bullet Hell. Honestly, if insofar as I had any success with Returnal, it's because I have a couple of, of years of training in Bullet Hell shooters. And so if you see a wave of projectiles coming at you, uh, sometimes I, you know, just as a bullet hell player, I'd be like, okay, there's where I need to be. And then I'd remember, oh, wait, I have an invincible dash. Okay. And then just things seem really easy at those points. Anyhow, moving on to the actual board game stuff. I realized going into the ending of Returnal that I didn't really understand anything about the plot. <laughs> I just, there were some things I thought I knew. And there were a couple of events in the backstory, because a lot of it is about the backstory, about events that happened prior to the start of the game. That is, that they actually happened. Uh, spoiler warning, there, there, there is the possible interpretation in Returnal, everyone's favorite one of, it was all a dream, it was all in the head of the protagonist. And uh, yeah, it's not ever really very satisfying. Hasn't been, I think, for 50 years, but anyway, moving on. There was one event that I thought I kind of understood. And... Uh, Past that, it was all a complete mystery. I had no clue what was happening and why. There are various levels of the narrative and various levels of the pre-narrative, and I didn't understand any of it, except for one incident, I thought. Now, I still very much enjoyed the writing a lot of the time, because it was definitely setting an atmosphere. And one of the things that I really appreciated about Returnal was that, uh, contra almost all media since the Avengers movies, uh, the main character doesn't quip. She is a professional in a very, very difficult situation, and her nerves are fraying, and she doesn't quip. She doesn't taunt. She doesn't make witty witticisms. She's not trying to be in a Joss Whedon show, which is what pretty much every piece of media has been trying to be ever since the Avengers movies. Anyway, so we're heading in there, and I, I, there were a number of very, very memorable moments, even if I didn't understand the broader context. Sometimes you don't have to in order for things to be very moving. You know, little vignettes. There was one part in particular, which can't even be a spoiler because you won't even understand the context, where the main character is desperately trying to convince herself in a, in a moment of self-deception uh, as to how many flowers you need to make a bouquet. And it was very touching. I mean, in the abstract, it sounds stupid, right? It's like, what? The number of flowers? But, but it mattered. And it was very salient. And it was very touching. And it, it'll, it'll stay with me. So heading into the ending of Eternal, the ending was one of those cases where I was desperately holding on to what I thought I understood, and the ending clarified nothing, and in point of fact demonstrated to me that I did not understand the thing that I thought I understood. So I, I, I just had this drained look of dizzying incomprehension after watching the ending. And then you see the secret ending, which I've also seen. No matter what anyone else has said about me, I have beaten Returnal. And uh, that didn't clarify much either. Anyway, then you go to the internet, and you try to read people's theories, but again, it's only at the level of theory. No one really knows, or at least if they think they know, they're, they're, they're kind of guessing. That's a whole thing. What this convinced me of was that I do not like emergent storytelling in video games. I want the narrative to be more direct. Now, emergent storytelling, it's not a dichotomy, right? You're going to have moments of emergent storytelling. And I keep talking, you know, the two best told video games that I can think of are probably Star Control 2, greatest game ever made, and Spec Ops The Line. And Spec Ops The Line is, is a tour de force of modern video game telling. 
And some of it is emergent, but a lot of it is pretty direct. Star Control 2, a lot of the storytelling is just through information dumps, frequently from a third party. It's like, oh, by the way, here's something that happened 2,000 years ago. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just a quality of the writing and the world building that makes it work. There's no clever storytelling techniques at play, really, in Star Control 2. I mean, it was published in 1991, so we're willing to give it a little bit of slack. But emergent storytelling ain't my thing. As a way to deliver the plot, no thanks. For example, the other video game I've talked about recently, because the other one, the, the last one that I truly, truly enjoyed that came out that was new, was Elden Ring. Elden Ring, similarly, there's a story, things happen. There, you know, events transpire over the course of the game uh, that are uh, also inflected by events that transpired before the start of the game. And I don't really understand either of those things. The story that I would tell of Elden Ring is a character shows up and proceeds to systematically murder a whole bunch of things. That's the story of Elden Ring. See, it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. But uh, there's this all this stuff about gods and pantheon and terrible things that happened and this, that, and the other. And uh, Some of the details kind of made sense to me, kind of, sort of, maybe, almost. But a lot of the storytelling in those games, and this is true also of the Dark Souls games from which the Elden Ring game was derived, is through, you know, flavor text buried in a consumable item you might pick up. And then you're supposed to make connections through weird scattered references that people make elliptically, and then this kind of picture emerges. I don't get it. I I played through a fair amount of the Dark Souls games, and I understood zero of it, too. But there are people who care a great deal, and a large majority, I think, of people who put in as much time in those games collectively as I have seem to have a much better sense of what's going on. So in short, not only do I not like emergent storytelling... I don't think I'm, I'm, it's not a question of intelligence necessarily, because uh, people have pointed out, look, you know, Mark, if, if you're going to insist, as I do, and I mean this, that you don't want to talk about smart people and dumb people, then you shouldn't engage in self-deprecating humor either, if you say you're not smart enough for something. I'm not, const I'm not constituted properly. I don't have the right mindset or the right frame of reference to put together the stories of those From Software games. I just don't. Similarly, I'm not in a position to put together the story of something like Returnal. It just confuses me. Now, when it comes to movies and stuff like that, sometimes confusing stuff is great. It's, it's exactly what I, I like. A fair amount of David Lynch stuff. Not necessarily Twin Peaks, but uh, Mulholland Drive I thought was great. And I loved going into what various things could have meant. Uh, Donnie Darko is one of my favorite movies. And there's nothing but trying to piece together various bits of nonsense in Donnie Darko. I don't know why I'm willing to forgive it in movies and not in video games. It is what it is. That's where it is. It, uh, possibly because I'm willing to engage in, you know, a couple of hours of mysterious nonsense and, and what it means. As opposed to like... 60 hours of video game where there's like bits of nonsense scattered throughout and I have to piece it together in some encyclopedic way. That's what wikis are for. I'll play the game and if I care about the story enough, I'll try to find out answers on the internet, which is what I did with Returnal and the answers I found about Returnal were big fat nothing. Okay, so let's bring it back to video games. I don't like the style of narrative that I would characterize as more direct in most board games. I want the storytelling in board games to be emergent. So compare, you know, pretty much anything by Awakened Realms or by Fantasy Flight or, you know, flavor text and the short story at the beginning and this, that, and the other. Take any of those and compare it to, say, a game of Meltwater or a game of Innovation or a game of Blue Moon. 
or a game of Tigers and Euphrates, whatever. I mean, the, the, the storytelling involved in those uh, latter games, especially Meltwater, it's worth saying. Meltwater is, is some of the best emergent storytelling in board gaming ever. Not only is it a political satire and a political critique of a certain view of geopolitical armed conflict, but it also makes you feel, it evokes an emotion in you. It really sells the sentiment at the heart of the cruelty that it wishes to examine. Compare that to Endless Flavor Text, right? Now, there's one exception, and that is uh, most of the work of Nikki Valens, particularly the legacy of Dragonhold. To a certain extent, the storytelling in Splendid Vale. Splendid Vale has been a bit more of a slog. What I wanted Splendid Vale to be was a more robust and interesting combat system matched to some of the elements of, of Dragonhold's storytelling and quality writing. And instead, what I feel like I've got is a story that is told with perhaps the same technical accomplishment and skill as was told in Dragonhold, but of a different tone that I don't quite like as much, coupled with a combat encounter system that is very perfunctory and not very satisfying. Also very, very easy. So that's, that's, that's been the effort. But nonetheless, when it comes to storytelling, uh, Nikki Valens is one of the best in terms of direct, overt storytelling in the world of board games, of hobby board games. And that's why I keep saying that they should really collaborate with David Thompson, because uh, most of my best Nikki Valens experiences have been solo, or at least solo capable. You know, Mansions of Madness Second, what they did with Mansions of Madness Second was really, really good. And really use the app to, to, to flex the storytelling muscle at the heart of what Kinesco wanted to do with Mansions of Madness. And Dragonhold remains the best choose-your-adventure style thing ever done in board gaming, as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, most of the time, I don't want the explicit narrative in a board game. I want emergent narrative. I want emergent storytelling. I want the scattered bits of detail that inform you of a broader world. And the bits that get fleshed out of them in, in the middle are almost purely driven by your own actions. Because in context, you know, going back to the, the, my, my, rend, my rendition of the story of Elden Ring, character shows up and proceeds to systematically murder a great many things over the course of 100 hours. It was nonetheless compelling, even in a narrative level, because of the constant sense of discovery and the sense of agency that was at the core of all of it. I, don't, I wouldn't want to watch a Let's Play uh, I don't generally watch people play video games generally unless it's fighting games to, to discover new techniques and things like that. But even if I were inclined to watch people play video games, I, having played Elden Ring, I definitely wouldn't be in a position to want to watch someone else play it again. I mean, I've, 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 I've seen this back, like, unless they were going into some dungeon that I hadn't seen before, which there were, of which there were probably several. At any rate, I wanted Returnal to tell a more simple, straightforward story. And I want most board games to stop trying to tell me a story and give me the tools and the bones and the foundations to let the story emerge naturally. And it's a bit of a shame when you get something that's mechanically compelling, in the case of Returnal, uh, failing to deliver that same narrative style that I would want. There are lots and lots of games, even abstracts or even close to abstracts, where I feel like a good story was told, but that was because of emergent storytelling. And that's something that the players can bring to the table. Some designs can facilitate it more or less than others, but there you have it. And no matter what else ever happens, I beat Returnal. Moving on, it's been a hot minute since I've talked about the American Supreme Court here on Bloat, but let's return back to it. Uh, first off, in passing, I just want to note that I commented before that the standards that we have as a podcast and the standards that we, we adhere to here at So Very Wrong About Games seem to be 
much more stringent than those standards of many Supreme Court justices. And I, I say that with no joy or pleasure, right? Am I am I proud of the fact that we have high standards at Swag? Yes. Uh, but I'm not happy with the fact that, you know, nine of the most powerful humans on Earth, <laughs> which is what the Supreme Court justices are, uh, seem to have varying levels of disdain for what I would call basic standards of even editorial rigor, and they're not even journalists or even trying to do anything remotely related to commentary. They're actually lawmakers. Much as they would dispute that characterization, of course, but uh, we can speak as adults. They literally make law, so there you go. They're lawmakers. There's one exception, though. Thurgood Marshall. He was the first African-American justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. He was appointed in the 60s. His wife at the time, Cecilia Marshall knew what she had to do. She knew she needed to be above reproach. She knew she knew that her husband needed to be above reproach. She was keenly aware of the amount of attention that was being devoted to them. I commented before that, you know, we're not we're not eager to make friends amongst the game design community and she went a step further. <laughs> she felt and she taught, she was very she was very clear about this in a lot of her um, uh, messages and correspondence. She had to freeze some existing friends out. She felt in order to maintain the position. And this is her as the wife of a justice of, of the Supreme Court, right? Uh, contrast that with some of the current spouses of the Supreme Court. But anyway, we don't think that as as uh, board game critics we have to go that far. <laughs> but we're certainly not keen to make new. Social entanglements, but we're not going to ice anybody out of the picture. Anyway, but moving on. So there's this notion in Supreme Court analysis and commentary called dicta, which is the plural of dictum. Latin just for stuff people said. And dicta is, as a category, is basically stuff that isn't law, stuff that isn't precedent, but maybe sometimes you can look at it for guidance, or maybe not. It's it, it's somewhat controversial. Generally speaking, the vibe that I get is if the dicta agrees with you, you can invoke it. But if the dicta doesn't agree with you, you dismiss it as a relevant dicta. Anyway. Uh, and sometimes this is manifestly absurd. Like, for example, one bit of, of strange dicta that John Roberts invoked recently in Murphy Harper was, <laughs> well, Justice Blackman's private notes... Uh, seemed to indicate that this, that, and the other. And it's like, well, okay, fine. That's one thing. We don't tend to invoke private notes, especially when the judge was in a position to, I don't know, write a ruling. But on top of that, the notes in question are quite at odds with the ruling he wrote. So why should we prefer his notes to the actual ruling that he wrote? Anyway, this is one of the reasons why proclamations from the bench can be somewhat complicated. It used to be back in the day before COVID. The way it used to work was people would read the decisions from the bench rather than just publish them. They they, publish, they still publish them online. Uh, but rather than just publish them, they would also read the ruling from the bench. But they wouldn't read the ruling. They wouldn't open it up and be like, okay, I'm going to read the ruling verbatim now from the bench. They would read a version of it, maybe sections, maybe edited, maybe just a different version. So there would be stuff that was in the, ru the red ruling that wasn't in the actual decision. And vice versa, obviously. Same thing with the dissents. And this could sometimes lead to very sincere difficulties. Say the law is ambiguous. Say the decision is ambiguous. Well, can you then invoke what the person said from the bench if it wasn't included in the ruling? Well, maybe you can, maybe you can't, because that was only just one person talking about the, the, the ruling. When in theory, the ruling was typically done by five or more justices. So things get complicated. So dicta is very controversial. The same is true, I would argue, in board games. 
you know, the, the games that we've got, to a certain extent, the rule books are basically like the rulings. You know, we've got this text. And when it com- I've, I've said this before, when it comes to board games and board game rules interpretation, I try to be a textualist, at least in the hopes that it's the most defensible and the most approachable and accessible for everybody involved, because everyone's got access to the rules, at least in theory. Maybe not always the same rules, different editions of different rules, but rather than relying on, you know, some speculation that some person had on a, uh, a message forum or what someone thinks is more intuitively obvious, because let me tell you, get three gamers in a room together and you get three different versions of what's intuitively obvious. I once had a very heated argument with Louis that I'll, I'll never forget. We were playing Warhammer Underworld Shadespire. I thought he would love it. He hated the game. It almost exclusively because of the ability cleave. I tried to explain to him, look, in this game, I would show him the rulebook. Cleave means that a certain kind of defense roll doesn't work against that skill. He's like, no, no, no. Cleave means you hit multiple targets that you're standing next to. I'm like, yes, that's what it means in other games, but that's not what it means here. It's like, well, they clearly meant for that to work this way. Otherwise, they wouldn't have used the word cleave. I'm like, Louis, we, they meant for the ability to work the way it was described on the cards and in the rule book. He's like, no, that doesn't make any sense to me. It's intuitively obvious. We went back and forth on this for quite some time. He was not pleased. I should have just given up. <laughs> I should have just let him do the thing that he wanted to do. Whatever. Anyway, but setting all that aside. So I, you know, try to defer to the, the text that's there. Now, some, obviously the text gets ambiguous all the time. And that's why I'm not a textualist in the case of law, right? In the case of law, I'm not a textualist because I think that you should be more uh, sympathetic to things like context and policy. Uh, but then again, I'm not a constitutional supremacist anyway, so setting all that aside. Yes, I believe that Marbury versus Madison was wrongly decided. That is in point of fact what I'm saying. But setting all that aside. So where does this shake out? Well, for example, there's the great controversy in for sale. I can't. I, I talk about this all the time. Whether you take half the bid rounded up or half the bid rounded down. There at least, it's a case of conflicting texts. So you can just stipulate which edition you're playing, and the rulebook will be dispositive as to which way you want to play. Now, you don't have to do it that way. You can play for sale however you want to. Just, you know, stipulate how it's going to be, and that's how it's going to be. You obviously can't have player A working from one set of rules and player B from a different set of rules, since the player A gets to take back half their bid rounded down and player B gets to take back half their bid rounded up. That's obviously not, that's not workable. But you can stipulate, you can have different groups, even in, even with the same edition of the game, the same physical components, playing with different rules, and that's fine, so long as it's clearly established. Then things get a little bit more complicated when we have a situation like in Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel is a Reiner Knizia design originally published by Hans M. Gluck. And first of all, it's a very good game. I highly recommend it. It's kind of an area-majority game, but it's also kind of a deal-making game, and it's, it's got a very interesting set of deal-making rules. When it was originally published, uh, very soon it was identified that there's a bit of a glaring problem with the rules as written. There are these things called action cards. If you are the one who is responsible for, quote-unquote, it's a little more complicated than that, but let's speak simply. I don't want to have to explain the entire rules of the game of the Tower of Babel to, to get this point across. If you finish off a wonder in the rules as, as published, you get a bonus card. The bonus cards suffer from two problems. First of all, they vary wildly in quality. Some of them are amazing, and some of them are not very good. That's bad enough. What makes it worse is that 
this action that is being incentivized by giving a bonus card is already something you want to do. It's an area majority game. It has area majority scoring in it. Everybody who plays area majority uh, games, unless there's something really weird going on, knows that you want to go last. Going last is advantageous. You know exactly what needs to happen. You know what needs to be done. If you're going first, you're speculating as to what's going on. It's like, is three enough to get a good score here? I don't know. We'll see what other people do. So obviously you want to go last. If you're the one completing the wonder, if you're the one triggering the scoring, you're already in a position where you can control the lay of the board and get a significant advantage. You don't need another advantage on top of that, and you don't need the advantage to be massively swinging in terms of value. Well, word came down through the playground that the action cards were not designed by Reiner Knizia and were instead inserted by the publisher. And immediately a narrative emerged, and I will confess I was in that narrative 100%. That, oh, this is another example of a publisher not understanding Reiner Knizia's genius. Oh, the great sacred Dr. Knizia can do no wrong, but Hans and Gluck done messed it up. So don't play with the action cards. And I can tell you, having played a number of times with and a number of times without, Tower of Babel is better without the action cards. I still have it in my collection. I recommend it. If you have a chance to play Tower of Babel, play Tower of Babel. This simple, dare I say, simplistic narrative was complicated. When it became clear that the developers and the publishers had not just inserted action cards, they'd also inserted a major rule into the game of Tower of Babel. That rule being, when you refuse somebody's offer, because remember I said there's a weird deal-making mechanism, the person whose offer you refuse gets one point per card you refused. So say someone says, I'm going to help you out with uh, two pieces of stone and a piece of marble. And you say, no, go away, I don't need you. Or I don't want you. You know, the same thing that my parents tell me. That person gets three points. It really makes the offer system very interesting in terms of the dynamics of the game. It also makes card flow very interesting. It's a very stellar part of the game. And Reiner Knizia had nothing to do with it. This was rumored a few years before the publication of Victory Point Games' quote-unquote follow-up to Tower of Babel called Planet Rush. Planet Rush was Reiner Knizia's sci-fi retheming of uh, Tower of Babel with his original vision. It had three changes to the published Hans and Gluck version, other than the theme. Number one, no more act these bonus cards. Great, fine. Number two, this offer mechanism was excised. Number three, scoring... The way it works in Tower of Babel is as you complete different wonders, the value of the wonders goes up. So you, the, the scoring gets higher and higher. The last wonder to be completed is worth more points than the first wonders. That was gone too. I've played Planet Rush. Well, more specifically, I've played Tower of Babel with Planet Rush rules because you can do that. It is not nearly as good of a game <laughs> as Tower of Babel is. I would venture to say, this is a bit of a weird comparison, it's been a while since I've played with the action cards, but uh, I dare say I would rather play Tower of Babel with those terrible action cards than I'd want to play P Planet Rush. Because look, Reiner Knizia has designed some great games, but we all know that he's also designed some dull ones. Sometimes they've been mechanical and mathy in all the worst ways. Planet Rush, I think, is one of those games. You know, you hear about the, the offer mechanism is still unique, except as compared to Tower of Babel. And my general impression of Planet Rush is one of those games where it's like, oh, well, that sounds fascinating. That's a novel thing. Let's give it a shot. And then it's like, oh, shame it didn't pan out. <laughs> right? 
We've all had those experiences. And Tower of Babel without that extra roll is in there. So, so what does this have to do with dicta? Well, there's this huge mess, right? There's all this information flowing around about who came up with what, when, where, how, and why. And trying to, trying to trace back the true original design gets complicated. And this is one of the things, this is a, an important follow-on from one of the things I said in the show. I was, said, I'm going to be trying to be more clear in my language from now on and not be sloppy and say, I'm a fan of Reiner Knizia. I'm going to say, I'm a fan of Reiner Knizia's games. Or even just a subset of his games, because I don't like all of them. I haven't even played all of them. No human being can play all of them. Playing all of Reiner Knizia's games sounds like a more impossible proposition than finishing a game of campaign for North Africa. But I gotta say that this is an instance in which Hans and Gluck got the short end of the stick. For years, amongst the Reiner Knizia fanboys, and yeah, we're, we're an obnoxious lot, We the story of Tower of Babel was that Reiner Knizia designed this great game and Hans and Gluck almost ruined it. No! <laughs> in point of fact, from my perspective, having now with a little bit of more information, we're now in a position that we can see that Reiner Knizia had a good idea and a bit of a mediocre game, and Hans and Gluck made it shine. But in order to figure out who's responsible for what, you have to start tearing apart stuff for which we have no solid information. You have to start delving into the dicta. All this non-binding stuff. I heard that this developer introduced this rule, or this playtester suggested this thing. And we don't have good documentation for this. Even really well-done developers and designers' notes. First of all, we seldom get good designers' notes. Almost never in Euro games, right? So we don't even have that. Sometimes, if you're lucky, you get a designer's diary, which serves mostly the same purpose. But do we get a developer diary? Almost never. Do we get playtester reports? Almost never. Do we get annotations in the rulebook saying what came from whom? No. It's all a black box. We've got a rulebook. We've got one or two, usually one or two, sometimes more names on the front of the cover. And that's that. And we don't know where all this stuff came from. And so naturally, this feeds into this sort of, you know, cult of personality almost of the designer. Which is a shame. I don't know if there's a solution to this. I don't know what's to be done. But it's unfortunate that we live in a situation where all this work, good or bad, is attributable to the designer. I mean, it would be just as bad if it was the opposite, right? What if Rainer Knizia had introduced the Tower of Babel the way I like it to be played... Namely, with progressive scoring and points for rejected offers, but no action cards. Say he submitted that to Hans and Gluck. And say Hans and Gluck then published Planet Rush, but with bonus action cards. In other words, the worst possible version of the game, as far as I'm concerned. Eh, we wouldn't know. Look, Reiner Knizia is a professional, right? He knows he's not going to burn any bridges with publishers ever. He's not going to say... He's, if you ask him, he'll probably tell you the truth, and indeed he did in some interviews. But this just makes me want to sit every designer down ever and say all right buddy give me all the dicta tell me what they changed how and when what's your what's your director's cut of the game just between you me and the wall and then tell everyone in the world not that i would do that of course dicta complicates things in the realm of law but dicta can give you an interesting perspective in the context of hobbyist board games because you can tweak a board game endlessly I'm not inclined to do it my own damn self. I, I, I seldom have any intuitions about how to make a game better, specifically in terms of specific mechanisms or house rules. I'm very loath to introduce those things. But if we just had a bunch of dissents 
or a bunch of dicta appended to every rulebook. Not even variants. But it's just, sometimes sometimes we get this, right? This is what the designer wanted. This is what the developer wanted. The rules as published are A. We recommend starting with A. But if the designer had gotten their way, it would look like B. Give it a shot if you want. Sometimes this happens. But far too rarely. And so as a result, we have to start paging through interviews and speculating. It's not a factually accurate representation of how the board game industry works, and I think it it leaves us in a somewhat impoverished position in terms of options about how to play games. Because you don't even have to necessarily have a solid intuition about how to improve games, but after playing a game, you might think, oh, you know, A and B are promising, but I have some doubts. Just hearing about how different variants work, experienced gamers usually might have an intuition about which ones they'd like to try and which ones they, they don't think are as promising. I suspect they'd have a high degree of success. I want there to be more dicta in board gaming and less dicta in law. That's my position. That was Bloat, Mark Blathers on about things. Before we continue, we've got to pay some bills. It's great that ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, but you can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. It's so simple, even a gibbon could do it. ExpressVPN lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from over 100 different countries. I've been using ExpressVPN to check out Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance on South Korean Netflix, Friends and the American version of The Office on UK Netflix, Back to Canada for Sound of Metal, and Luxuriating in the One and Only Tim Riggins with US Netflix and Friday Night Lights. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I love ExpressVPN is because it is so fast and unobtrusive. It also works on all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So if you want to get access to hundreds of new shows, use my link right now, expressvpn.com slash games, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash games. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back to the show. To close out this sampler of Patreon-exclusive content, here is a segment of Sizzler, Spirit Island, zealously zapping legions of European rapscallions. You know, I'm beginning to suspect I may have an acronym problem. I don't know if there's any official form of treatment. Anyway, this is the beginning of the very first Sizzler. There have been five published so far, and more to come. And here we see the gnawing root biter, enjoying its meal of animated rack root. It lives in uncomfortable symbiosis with the tormenting rotflies, whose preferred diet is the flesh of damn fool colonizers who don't come correct. And now, for a rare glimpse of the stately sea monsters, whose ponderous lurchings in our direction mean it is time to pray for a quick death. Welcome everyone to the inaugural episode of Spirit Island, zealously zapping legions of European rapscallions. Sizzler, devoted to our recounting of Games of Spirit Island. With me, and this is a great pleasure, first time on the podcast, is my great friends Jimbo. Hello. And Megan. Hello. You might have seen them before on streaming. They are marvelous human individuals whose voices I felt needed to be heard broader on the interwebs. 
And just to some of our general background about the game, I'd been, as I've said before a number of times on the podcast, I've been playing Spirit Island for years before it was published. But actually, I think my first intuition that something was going to come of it was when I played it with you, Jimbo. And this was years and years ago, right after Kickstarter had fulfilled. Yep. And you were completely blown away. Absolutely. I think Spirit Island is, if not my number one game of all time, easily in my top five, probably my top three. Um, I'm a huge co-op fan. I love that sort of area denial, kind of the team play, just everything about Spirit Island. And the theme, everything about the theme just constantly blows me away from the, the cool name of Spirits and Powers. I just, I, I love Spirit Island. Everything about it, I'm very enthusiastic. We'll always take a chance to play. And Megan, what's, briefly, do you, what's your history with the game? Um, I mean, I think I got to it a little bit later than ever, everyone else here, but I also really love it. I also love, love co-ops. I find a lot of the complaints about co-ops are like, oh, quarterbacking and things like that. And it's just, it's so hard to like, quarterback it. Um, Borderline impossible, yeah. <laughs> so I just, I love the, like, the complexity and the crunchiness of it. And the fun spirit names are great. <laughs> yeah, I think that echoes a lot of what I've been hearing because in terms of slightly crunchier Euro-style co-ops, there's not a whole lot there. I mean, there's Mage Knight, and that's about it. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, yeah, crunchy crunchy European-style co-ops are thin on the ground, for sure. Yeah, it's, too, it's a bit of a shame. So, we just finished a three-player game of Spirit Island, as you might imagine. And, uh, Megan, why don't you tell us about the setup that we had? We were dealing with the... Invasion of Sweden. Um, Invasion's a good word for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what does Sweden do again? I, I, I was not. I was not Sweden, looking at the uh, invader. Sweden's big back. on uh, heavy mining, so if they if they do they, six they, or more they do damage, extra blight. Yeah we, yeah, we never we never let them do extra blight, so we didn't actually <laughs> encounter it much. Yeah, we did Sweden level two, which gives them an extra fear card, an extra setup condition. The escalation condition, of course, and that aforementioned six damage, which never became an issue. Yeah, the starting with an extra city is was pretty intimidating off the go, um, and there were definitely some points where at least I looked at my board and thought, uh-oh, I, <laughs> I have already let things get out of control. So th this was difficulty level three, which in hindsight I think is probably a little bit lower than we're that that is probably our, our normal comfort level. I would suspect so. We're yeah. at the sort of we're at the point now where we're going through the adversaries each at difficulty level four. Um, I suspect we could probably go up to difficulty six and that would be where we begin to like, to probably really struggle. Um, I have fond memories of playing it with, uh, with Trevor and Walker, uh, where we tried France at difficulty six on the thematic board and got just ruined. <laughs> like three or four turns, they completely just wiped us out. It was, uh, France, it was pretty shocking. France is hard if you, if you can't deal with them right off the bat. Yeah, and it did not uh, did not help that on the cinematic side of the board, or the thematic, I can never remember which it's actually Thematic, called. I think. Um, one of the lands starts with four explorers, so they explode <laughs> into it, and then immediately turn it into like four or five towns, and it was it was all all downhill for France from there. Wow, I've never played the th the the so called th thematic board. Wow, it's uh it's a right, and it's beautiful. The thematic board is beautiful, and I feel bad that I don't play on it, but I just love how clear everything is spelled out on the main board. Like, right, there's no no argument about what's what. There's no concern about anything like that. Maybe you know I should probably get to trying the thematic board at some point but you know it's just sort of on the list of i'd like to but i'm not it's like the scenarios right yeah you probably should play the scenarios at some point but i'm not exactly fussed about it and you were commenting megan that your difficulty level seems to be roughly the same yeah I, I, preferred I, I, level that is probably yeah again i could probably tend to play a little bit 
higher than what we played today, but not much. Yeah, it's weird. And I'll just repeat something I've said a, a bunch of times before. Uh, there is there are two factors that lead me to gravitate towards difficulty level three and under. Number one, Spirit Island is good even when you're engaged in a raffle stomp. Even when it's trivial, you still get to pull fun levers and see fun things happen. Absolutely. And even at higher difficulty levels, power uh, Spirit Island is often a power fantasy. So, you know, low, low difficulty levels often help with that. And number two, I wish there were there were high, really high difficulty levels that didn't have, like, six different lines of added rules to process every time the invaders did anything. Yeah. Yeah, I suspect that uh, if we do get up to the higher difficulty levels, the first one will probably be Brandenburg Prussia, just because right. a lot of it's just front-loaded setup stuff. Mm-hmm. They rarely do... But some of them, the the uh, the angry betentacled clauses and subclauses, uh, become a, a real bear to deal with. Yeah, it can be hard to remember. Like, oh right, the invaders were supposed to do this when this other thing happened, and uh, it can be a little tedious to deal with with some of them. But yeah. if it's set up, like, well, this is hard. But part of me wonders if there's a way to make really really good player aids to parcel out the invader responsibilities so that everyone is responsible for just one or two items. But anyway, that that is a challenge for a future day. As I say, we were doing level uh, level two, difficulty level three, Sweden, which is actually my one complaint about the way expansions have been rolling out because there's no difficulty level keying on the original adversaries' tracks. But whatever. Yeah, I'd love to see the originals reprinted with the same uh, mm-hmm. difficulty level printing yeah. as the uh, as the jagged uh, jagged earth ones. Yeah, to not have to refer to the rulebook would be would be yeah. very very helpful. So why don't we talk about the spirits we chose and our general experiences uh, with them? Jibbo, why don't you take us away? So I decided to play Starlight Seeks Its Form this time. Um, with uh, I generally like when we're playing with adversaries, I like to take a look at who's extra difficult to play against them and who makes them somewhat easier. Um, for Sweden, it's uh, spirits that can prevent ravages. So I was looking at, uh, taking a strong look at Vital Strength of the Earth and... Uh, Jagged Stones Unyielding Defiance. Yeah, you love both of those. you played both of those spirits a number of times. Though, yeah, but I've played... Uh, I'm not wild about um, Vital Strength of the Earth, and I play uh, the Stone Spirit quite a lot. So I decided yeah. instead to try Starlight Seeks its form with more of a defensive bent. Right. And Starlight Seeks its forms, it, form is the Create a Spirit. Yeah, that's the, the, the Craft a Spirit where you start with uh, several much smaller tracks, and as you... Uh, put presence onto the board. You unlock new growth powers. You get to choose three growth options in a turn, which gives it, I think, almost unparalleled flexibility once mm. it gets going. Um, as well, every time you uh, reveal an element, you get to choose what element that it permanently is. So I'd originally started with quite a lot of Earth with the agenda being defensive, and then drew a major power relatively early on that shifted my focus slightly more towards fire and water. Yeah, why don't you tell us about that one? So... Um, <laughs> I definitely found that, although I was defending quite well, my board was getting out of control. There were a lot of cities, towns were building up, explorers were getting to be a problem as well. So I went for a major power, uh, and my options were one power that didn't really work, uh, two powers that were interesting, and Flame and Flood, uh, which allows you to target two separate lands and do four damage to each. If you have three fire, you can do four damage to one of those lands. If you have three water, you can do an additional four damage to either land or the same. And that allowed me to... Uh, combo with Starlight Seeks Its Form's custom power that gives it an extra card play and the ability to choose one of its cards to play during the fast phase. So normally Flame and Flood is slow. This allowed me to scourge the land with Fire and Flood, 
uh, during the fast phase for four and eight or eight and eight damage, depending on how I got my elements going. Yeah, and you did that two or three times, and that I think that was definitely what pushed us over. I think that was the sign that we moved from the mid game into the end game when you were pulling that crap in the middle of the fast phase. <laughs> while I should stress, still doing other things like supporting the rest of us. It uh, it definitely uh, it's definitely not a good thing for the invaders when major powers start hurling, hitting the board in the fast phase. It just it's well, that's so the painful. thing. I remember counseling, or at least partially recommending, Power Storm as an option, because Power Storm is such a great support uh, uh, ability. Mm -hmm. But I completely forgot, and it's a good thing you didn't, that Starlight Seeks' form can basically pick its own elements. And so you were in a position to just craft yourself to get in there, and it just completely destroyed everything. I did, uh, on a previous game, probably several years ago now, a friend of mine played Starlight Seeks' form for his first time. And he took Power Storm, uh, and he had gone the Sun route, and the number of the amount of fear he was generating every turn. Starlight seeks its forms. Sun aspect gives it free energy and fear generation. Right. And then Power Storm uh, lets you repeat stuff. So the amount of fear flying around the board was just absurd. It was uh, it was pretty awesome. Yeah, the siren call of damage during the growth phase is so appealing, but I think it might be a bit of a dead ender. Uh, when compared to some of the other things that you can do, if you get a good power, uh, good major power to work. Yeah, with. I think if you can if you can get that. Zero cost, range zero, two damage during the growth phase early, like really early. Yeah. It really does let you preempt some of the faster growing adversaries. Yeah. But if you're already several turns in, I don't think you can argue with an extra card play and one of your slow powers is fast. Yeah. And your characterization of your board, I think, is is accurate. I, I disagree that it went out of control, but very quickly it went from a smattering of cities and a lot of towns everywhere uh, to at the end of the game where we won by a fear victory. Uh, your board was, what, there were a couple of explorers kicking around, if that? I think I still had a town. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think your, your board was definitely the clearest of them. It, uh, it let me hold off long enough while you and Megan generated the boatloads of fear uh, that we needed to to push it to the victory. On that topic, Megan, why don't you talk about your spirit? Uh, I played uh, Spread of Rampant Green, uh, which is a great spirit for flexibility also, I find. Um, How so? Uh, just for... Uh, just because... You can always remove your elements, your your presence to stop something oh, from sure. happening. So you don't need to rely on, oh, I need to get this element threshold to defend or or to move them out of here to stop the bill. Like, well, I'm, I'm great at getting presence out. I will just keep getting presence out. And uh, <laughs> if some of it goes away, that's fine. I can put it back out again. Yeah, exactly. Flood the board with presence yeah. and use it as necessary. It was wild. I'd, I'd forgotten. It's been a while since I, I played a lot of Spread of Rampant Green shortly after uh, release, and I haven't played for a while. I'd forgotten that it's an odd combination of damage and support, mm -hmm. which is which is a strange mix. You did both very well, I thought. Uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it is interesting like that because the main thing the the thing is best at dealing with is houses, towns. Yes, uh, let's you move towns. Uh, let's two damage is a pretty reasonable thing. It, had to, it wasn't until it was sort of late game when I was able to really start kicking cities. But it wasn't, like, even even the explorers weren't too too much of a worry. Like, oh, you go ahead, build a town. I will, I will deal with you later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Please, please build the town. I could use that too, Fear. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, remember, I remember offering you push abilities at several instances, and you were just always so indifferent. Like, yeah. it's like, yeah, I mean, look, if they build a town, what do I care? Yeah. <laughs> And what was I? You were you were generating like six to eight fear during some of those rounds. What was doing that? Um, that was so. I wasn't generating a lot of fear in the early game. That was mostly you. But once I got going, I had the card that lets me either put presence out or generate fear if I have presence animators in a spot, and that does three fear on its own. And then I was 
I, I forget the name of it because it was one of those long name cards, but the... The long name cards are the best, Megan. Yeah. I know, I haven't memorized it, but it, uh, it was Plants Ride in the Wind or something like that. Angry Pollen? You played Angry Pollen? <laughs> um, but but it uh, did a lot of damage triggering on uh, green tags, which I had a lot of. Yes. And uh, dumped out... Uh, wilderness as well so they couldn't get back into the spot yeah it was it was a three cost major power that yeah. triggered off of it's not earth what's the name of the green element plant uh, we, we always plant. call it plant yeah nature. plant that triggers off of plant and you're like okay <laughs> i remember when you pulled it it was like eh, sure yeah. This yeah. Seems like a, yeah and the triple uh the triple overgrowth tokens like no you're never exploring that yeah. that's not yeah happening. it's weird i mean by the time the thing is it's a three cost major power so you could theoretically be playing it in the early game but i don't uh, you, you know at that point honestly by the time you were you were dropping overgrowth at that point it was academic yeah yeah i also had the other thing i didn't i didn't do fear early game i didn't get power cards early game i was really just playing my starting power cards and just pushing getting presents out well you gave me an early presence that was crucial and you gave jimbo what two or three Oh yeah, and yeah. as as Starlight seeks its form, getting that extra presence out for new power for power customization and new symbols, and it definitely paved the path for uh, flaming and flooding. Yeah, and on top of that, your general indifference to losing presence uh, helped out with one event in particular, where everyone got to pick. Uh, I mean, the events overall were not kind to us, I don't think. Early on, we got a very, very favorable event, but then we got one that doubled the explorers for that round in conjunction with Sweden's Escalation, and that was nightmarish. We lost a whole bunch of Dahan out of that. Yeah, it was rough. Yeah, because yeah, the Escalation power, for listeners that don't have it ready to mind, is Sweden, after they explore, and keep in mind at this point, they've just added two new explorers, if the number of invaders equal the number of Dahan, they will convert a Dahan into a town. That was, that was terrible. By the end of the game, we had hardly any Dahan left on the board. And we just lost a whole bunch at a, at a wash, that one. Yeah, I'm really glad that I didn't play uh, Thunderspeaker. I had originally thought, oh, <laughs> yes. yeah. maybe if I can keep the Dahan in, like, in big in groups bulk, to yeah. avoid it. Yep. But I'm, I'm not sure I would have been able to, to group them up fast enough to avoid that. Game. In hindsight, it would have been really, really rough. In hindsight, though, by the same token, uh, maybe I should have played uh, Sharp Fangs Behind the Leaves. Because we were drowning in beasts at various points. True. Both by virtue of events and because uh, what Jimbo's leaving out is that in addition to loving the fire and loving the flood, he also liked insects, strangely. It was a tripartite yeah. fixation. I loved the uh, the ants, the all-consuming ants, and I picked up a card, Hazard Spread Across the Island, which allows you to duplicate an adjacent Badlands overgrowth. Right. Disease, strife, or beasts, you have to pay energy if you duplicate a disease. But so I was just duplicating beasts all over the place to allow me to target Carapist land mm -hmm. uh, more easily, which in turn the events were like, You like beasts? Great. Here's a whole yeah. lot of things that beasts do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The beasts turned out definitely for, for a fight. So my spirit was uh, hashtag best spirit, shadows flicker like flame. The two spirits that we personify the most, I think, are spread of rampant green and shadows flicker like flame. Uh, Spread of Rampant Green just because we love that line in the background about how Sp Spread of Rampant Green thinks it's being helpful even when it's not. And so we've kind of imagined Spread of Rampant Green as kind of a coked out, over-enthusiastic horticulturalist. It's like, hey guys, I saw you were planting plants. Here, cucumbers everywhere, bye! Yeah. Thanks. Oh, great. We were, That's wonderful. We were actually hoping to plant, but I, I guess, I didn't. Okay. I didn't want mm. a foundation, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, Shadows Flicker Like Flame, honestly, one of the reasons why I love it so much is because of Favors Called Dew, which I used with Reckless Abandon. I, I moved them to Han all over the place. I fed them to Jimbo for a while, but then I took them back. And because if every time you move them, if to hunt out number of the invaders, you generate three fear. I generated like a, probably a fear card all by my a couple a fear card oh, or two at, at by that alone. First, at least the first 
four or five fear cards were all you and Megan. Like I may have chipped in one or two, but uh, up to the up to the first like you know I would say solidly halfway through the deck, it was all you two with a lot of well, fear but, from yours. By that point, you but the thing is though, after that tipping point, you were generating as much fear as we were through sheer damage. <laughs> so when you wipe out three towns during the fast phase, it's hard to say sorry no, three cities. It's rather. hard to say no to flame and flood when you yeah. can guarantee you're going to be able to to hit for yeah. eight and four. Well, one of my consistent problems being the conservative gamer that I am is that I I tend never to go for the uh, major power soon enough. And especially uh, Shadows Flicker traditionally has energy problems, but there were two things uh, keeping that in check. Number one was the uh, occasional support bennies, either from Megan or from Jimbo. And number two, the fact that I was playing with the madness aspect, which doesn't cost any power. Madness is every time you add a presence through growth, you get to add Strife. Strife is probably one of my favorite tokens. Same. It's just, I love Strife. It's, yes, it's not very good. It's not as good as defense, but it's just so casual. It's like, I just drop it there. Maybe you'll use it next round. Maybe you'll use it 10 rounds from now. Who cares? It'll wait. And uh, I the, the major I picked up was Twisted Flowers Murmur Ultimatums. I had just been telling Megan that my two favorite card names were Twisted Flowers Murmur Ultimatums and Death Falls Gently from Open Blossoms. And I got to play Twisted Flowers Boosted twice. I didn't think I was going to get the elements out. But then Jimbo, lovely, lovely Jimbo, was like, could anyone use a couple elements? Like, I would love a couple plant. Thank you very much. I don't know if you were quite that uh, polite about it. <laughs> <laughs> there, there may have been uh, several, it's mine, you can't have it, it's mine. That well, might have happened. look, look. I wanted to make sure that people understood the ferocity with which I desired it <laughs> and how disappointed I would be if somebody else took it from me. No, look, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Megan, you never had any element concerns. Oh, I was mostly fine. Yeah, I mean... But by the time by the time elements were offered, I was fine. Yeah, exactly. And by the time elements were offered, I had given up on the prospect of Twisted Flowers being used in the boosted way because it needed moon, no problem, I was drowning in moon, wind, which I could do if I could, if I could work on it, and plant. I had one card that generated plant, Twisted Flowers. So Jimbo was the one that was able to do it. I had more animal than I had moon. I was able to boost a couple of animal cards uh, uh, and inflame the fires of life. But anyway... And uh, yeah, boosted boosted twisted flowers is great. It's a shame I wasn't able to do it more. It was three damage, remove three invaders, and seven fear, and a strife. Yeah, I love twisted flowers murder murder ultimatums. It's uh, much just like death falls gently from open blossoms is one of my favorite names for a card, and it's just it's so potent. Once it starts rolling, and the invaders are just drowning in fear and removing, losing some of their uh, their support guys. Oh, it's fabulous. And so I think it's it's hardly a surprise then that we won so handily. We weren't really in any danger, I don't think, at any time. One Blight was ever added, yeah, which we blight, then removed. One Blight was added, which was then removed. I, at one point, felt in danger early on. But looking back, I realized I wasn't actually in danger. I just felt I was. So. Well, that's the genius of Spirit Island. It makes you feel like you're in trouble even when you're not. Agreed. And we all, I, I think the key is, a good way to summarize it is, we all had major powers that we were playing boosted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Well, it is hard not to win when everyone at the table is able to do that. Like, things have to go seriously wrong for that to be overcome in any way. And our minor power game wasn't weak either. No, definitely not. Some of our minor powers were real workhorses. And that was Sizzler, Spirit Island zealously zapping legions of European rapscallions. Hope you enjoyed this peek into exclusive content, if you haven't heard it already. 
And if you want to support us, that's great. And if not, that's fine, too. We hope you enjoyed it regardless. Thanks very, very much for spending time with us. You're going to hear us back again on Tuesday morning for a regular show of So Very Wrong About Games. Thanks again for deciding to spend some time with us. We hope to see you again soon. And as ever, if you want to reach out and let us know that you want something covered or you have any questions about anything that we do on the show or feedback, you can find all our contact information at SoWrongGames.com slash contact, and we read everything that you send to us. Thanks again, take care, and see you soon. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much, see you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.